Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Hey there, welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. I'm your host, Dana Trampas. On this show, we're all about amplifying the voices of women and storytellers who are making waves. From innovations, advocacy, and more, we're here to showcase the incredible work being done by extraordinary individuals. And speaking of extraordinary, I'd like to give today's guest an opportunity to introduce herself and tell us a little bit about her work. So good morning, Dana. So I'm Shanta Chambers. I'm executive vice president for health equity and health equity initiatives and community engagement for Patient Advocate Foundation. I have been with Patient Advocate Foundation now, quickly approaching nine years after spending 15 plus years in public health. So I have an extensive background in women's health, population health, chronic disease prevention, health promotion, and of course, community engagement. So needless to say, I am so excited about being here with you today in our conversation. Yes, can you tell us a little bit about your current role at the Patient Advocate Foundation and what are you working on? What initiatives have you got going on right now? Oh, wow. How much time do we have? So just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so my work at PAF, I say I have the best job on this side of heaven. So my work is really around community engagement and it really provides an opportunity for me to work very intimately with grassroots organizations who are really on the front line every single day addressing access, affordability, and other types of issues for persons living with a variety of chronic diseases. Last year alone, Patient Advocate Foundation as an organization, we supported patients living with over a thousand different conditions, right? And so when we're talking about access and affordability, we're really talking about those non-clinical barriers to care. So the one's ability to be able to access insurance, identify insurance and enroll in insurance, identify resources to pay for those premiums, identifying resources to address basic cost of living. So all of those non-clinical barriers that are hindering one's ability to be able to access care, but we know if, if left unaddressed, they are significant in terms of the, the impact that they have on one's ability to access care, quality of life, etc. So excited about work that we've had going on most of 2023, which has really been addressing breast cancer, metastatic breast cancer, and triple negative breast cancer. Have, have had the great opportunity to work alongside community-based organizations in Chicago, 
to really talk about what are some of those barriers that the community has identified? What does community think are contributing to these premature breast cancer more mortality disparities? And more importantly, what does the community see as a solution? So really being able, again, to work, around, work alongside breast cancer organizations in those spaces to not only identify those gaps, but to galvanize other organizations that can really bring tangible solutions to the many issues that women and men living with breast cancer actually encounter. So that's just a little sneak peek of some of the work that we've been doing um, specifically around breast cancer and engaging with grassroots organizations. That sounds like amazing work and a lot and all in one. I think it would be great if you could tell us a little bit about, we hear the word the phrase health equity used quite a lot. And we hear the word equality used a lot. So can you talk a little bit about what the difference between equality and equity is and how does that play into everything that you just said about patient advocacy and community level initiatives? Perfect. So one of the things around equality, and I'm so glad you raised that, right? Because people sometimes use those terms interchangeably and they are so different. And so even when you think about equality, what we're coming into conversations around equality, you're basically saying, okay, let's give everyone the same thing, right? So let's say for today's podcast, in order for my voice to be amplified, I might need a microphone. Or you say anyone who's on your podcast may need a microphone for their voice to be amplified, right? So we give everybody a microphone. Equity says, do I have an electrical source at my house? to actually plug that microphone in so that it can perform its function. So equality comes into that space saying, let's give everybody the same thing. But equity comes into the space and it forces us to think about what does that person need in order to be successful to accomplish whatever the goal that we've set for the masses. So that is forcing us to say, wait a minute, giving everyone the same thing is not necessarily going to be what's the driving force to achieve Equity is really about meeting people where they are, meeting them at their point of need and being responsive to what it is that they actually need to reach the North Star. A lot of times in the digital health space, we get caught up in, oh, this wonderful solution is going to solve everybody's problems. But as you just spoke about, not everybody has access to these non-clinical things such as Wi-Fi. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, Because we are in the digital health space. Yes, I'll talk a little bit about that, but also talk about even how PAF got to this space, right? So PAF as a national nonprofit headquartered in Hampton, Virginia, was really birthed out of tragedy. And it was because our founder, Nancy Davenport Enos, lost a dear friend because her insurance would not allow off-label usage of a therapy that could have prolonged her life. And so from that very tragic event, Nancy vowed that no other person should ever lose their life because of an insurance-related decision. So her North Star was equality. How do we make sure that everyone has access to the most innovative therapies? How do we make sure that everyone has access to insurance? All of those things. So our foundation as an organization is one that has always been rooted in equality. But then as we begin 
to grow as an organization, we go, we can't rest on our loyals at equality. When we begin to look at the patients that we serve, we see the diversity in age and race and gender and sexual orientation and geography and all of those things. So we can't have a one prescription approach to how we engage with all of these audiences. So what does that look like? That is when you allow equity to come in. So even as an organization, we have this understanding that we can't take a one size fit all. That's why I always say in my work in community engagement, I have a whole lot of front porch and pound cake conversations, right? Because that means you're going in the communities where people are. You may, it's not Monday through Friday, nine to five. It may be Saturday. It may be at the laundromat. It may be meeting people in the line at the food pantry. It's about meeting people where they are. And so that even means in this digital space, right? So yes, broadband may be a a great tool, but we also have to realize that there are some limitations because not everyone has access to it just from availability standpoint, but also not everyone can afford it. We have to be very real that it's not cheap, nor is it free in most communities. And even if the technology might be free, the infrastructure does not exist. Even if the technology is there, even if the infrastructure is there, there's still this great literacy, digital literacy gap that no one has also addressed and tapped into. So all of these things create an opportunity for us to think about What is an equity-centered strategy that we need to think about as we talk about addressing the digital divide? I don't know if most of your listeners are aware of the, the FCC Affordability Connection Program, which is really designed to help close some of that that technology divide. However, even the application process, right? If I don't have, if the application process is digital, and I don't have a digital platform to access the application, then guess what? We've made one more resource available, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's accessible. So even in our efforts to close digital divides and these other divides, we have to ask ourselves, what is that equity center strategy or collection of strategies that need to be deployed so that we stop just making resources available we truly make them accessible. And I think that it's all about trying to meet people where they are and where they're at. Yes. On the flip side too, of this whole technology conversation with healthcare systems, we still hear about using facts, right? Yes. I've heard stories of patients who have to drive 30 minutes to go to a library or go to a space where they can send a fax because... That's the most secure thing that we have, but not everybody has a fax machine either. So it's this weird limbo that we're in healthcare that we talk about AI and all of these magical technologies, but patients still have to drive 30 minutes to send a fax. So do you have any thoughts on that? Almost administrative burden that's put on patients. Not just an administrative burden put on patients, as you said that, I thought about I thought back to some work we were doing in West Virginia a couple of years ago around lung cancer. And this is when lung cancer screening guidelines first came out. And so we were really working with community healthcare providers because A, not all healthcare providers are in these large academic medical centers, right? So these community healthcare providers, and one thing that stuck with me was one of the providers said as we were doing our provider behavior assessment, they said, can we, can you fax us the survey? 
we're talking about providers saying, can you fax me something? So because we even make the assumption that our provider system, especially those that are embedded in communities, have these dynamic infrastructures without realizing a lot of provider offices are still sending and receiving fax. Or that's the only way that they can also get information and even sharing that they are that Internet hub for so many of their patients. So even thinking about not only the impact on patients, but for those providers that are saying, hey, I'm staying in the community, really understanding that digital divide, that infrastructure uh, vulnerability that they even have. But I think you're absolutely onto something as we think about what our path for really looks like for patients and really having an understanding, as you said, not all patients understand information the same way. We also have to understand for some other racial and ethnic minority population, a digital platform is never going to be their comfort space, right? We also have to acknowledge the fact that there have been great criticism of AI in terms of the bias that has been embedded into some of those algorithms. We often use the phrase or hear the phrase that the system accomplishes what the system is designed to accomplish. And so that often plays out. There's much research around how this is played out in actual AI. And so it oftentimes can end up being more harmful for patients than actually helpful for patients. So these are all of those things, all of those considerations that we have to think about. And we also have to think about we're still having conversations around building trusting relationships between healthcare providers and patients. And now we're wanting to propose inter integrating into this kind of dynamic, this machine. So really taking the humanity out of it in a time where we're trying to say, okay, let's build trust and trustworthiness. Trust and trustworthiness comes from a human encounter. Yeah. It's one of those oxymorons. Can you talk a little bit, because you talked a little bit about the provider side, about why it's important to include the patient voice. So often we hear the phrase, we're all patients, right? But it, that's not quite true. Can you talk a little bit about that and how maybe you're amplifying that voice to make sure that voice is included in those spaces where those decisions are being made? We often talk about Patients may not be experts in science, but patients are experts in themselves. They live with themselves 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Not only are they paid, they're experts in themselves, they understand the social context in which their lives and their health takes place. So in that specific regard, they are a critical factor in that patient-provider relationship, and they are actually the entity most responsible for adhering to care, right? So a provider can make a recommendation for care, but the sole responsibility of what that adherence looks like, it really is relying upon that patient. And so that is why it's so critical that patients and providers have strong bi-directional relationships because if a patient is comfortable in that interaction with that provider, when a course of care is recommended, that patient, if they are food insecure, should feel comfortable enough saying, hey, that therapy you recommended requires that I be able to eat three, quote unquote, healthy meals a day. Unfortunately, where I live, we're in a food desert. Or for me to be able to fully comply, 
with that course of care, it's going to cost my family X, Y, and Z. And those are just extra resources that we don't have. Or you may say, hey, that therapy needs to be refrigerated. Unfortunately, I'm housing insecure. So I don't have a stable way to be able to refrigerate my medication or being able to do some of these other things. That's the strength and the value of that patient-provider relationship. And that is why it's so critical to make sure that providers leave room for that patient to be able to be a co a co-provider with them in terms of care because there is that responsibility around adherence. A therapy is no good if a patient can't really comply with the, the prescribed dosage or the prescribed recommendation. And so that is why you have to make sure that you're leaving space in your conversations with patients for the patient to be able to share their most pressing concerns. Or if that patient is on a therapy, experiencing some extreme side effects, you want to make sure you create that comfort space for them to be able to share that and not feel like they're going to be either penalized or being non-compliant, right? They're not non-compliant. There are just so many other social factors in the context of their lives that have to be considered. And that's often not a part of that patient-provider dynamic. And so that is why we have been leading efforts to really help strengthen that patient and provider communication and really giving patients the skills and the comfort they need to really be able to raise these other issues so that, A, yes, your provider is the expert in the science, but you are the expert in you. So empowering them to be able to bring their expertise about themselves into the room, as well as being able to share what is most important for them in terms of their healthcare goal. What's most important for them as they think about the next three, six, nine weeks or whatever, giving space for patients to talk about what's important to them and not only have it be a one direction relationship where the provider has said, hey, this is the goal that I want to get you to without leaving space to see if that's a mutually agreed upon goal with that patient. I know in your current role, you focus a lot on community engagement. Can you share some effective strategies for for engaging communities and in initiatives that are aimed at improving health equity. What's worked well and maybe what hasn't worked so well? The helicopter approach never works well. So anytime you want to go into the community and you want to land your helicopter over on Soldier Field or wherever you are and just come in and fix everything and ride it to the sunset, that never works well. It hasn't worked well. And we have evidence and evidence to show that, that doesn't work well. The things that do work well is first seeking to understand before you seek to resolve. And so in our work with communities, whether it's been in Memphis or Chicago or other areas, what we first always want to do is make sure that we do our homework so that we know who the stakeholders are. Before you're going into the community, pick up the phone and actually have conversations with some of those frontline grassroots organizations, get an understanding around what are they seeing as some of the challenges that are facing their community. And then once you've done your homework, going into that community and actually listening, listen to what the community is also saying, right? And it may be very different than the pre-printed agenda that we've gone into the community saying, okay, this is what we want to accomplish in this community because we have our goals that we want to meet. 
Not to say that's not important, but we want to make sure that we give space for the community to raise what's most important for them. Because as I shared in my opening, not only can a community help identify and share with you what the challenges are in their community, if you give them room space, they can also tell you what the solutions are. And then once we begin to listen, once we let the community give some recommendations around the solution, then we say, How do we create this atmosphere where co-creation with us as an external partner, along with those community level stakeholders and the community itself, how do we co-create a solution? How do we co-create a solution that could be sustained by the community once our efforts, our presence is no longer there? That has been what I've seen work well, seeking first to listen, then begin, hey, first doing your homework. Then actually listen to the community, creating space to co-create a solution, and always thinking about sustainability from that very first conversation. And then ask yourself, if you are a stronger, more solid organization, how can you leverage your brand, your recognition, your power, your influence to help make this community better? Not because you're here to quote unquote, because there's something wrong with that community, but it is what I feel like in, in my work in community engagement. That's the responsibility I feel like I owe that community to not just come in at one time, but how can we bring the full force of a PAF into a community to help be an additional tool in their tool belt. That is the approach that I have taken. I always use the analogy of a relay race. And I love that because the goal is the finish line for everyone in a relay. Even if I may not be the fastest runner, my still goal is to get across that relay, get across the finish line. And I think as we engage with communities, it's important for us as other maybe larger nonprofit organizations to ask ourselves, What's the appropriate leg in the relay for us to take? Realizing that in some communities, we may have to be that convener, that first leg to get things going. But then in other communities, we may need to be the anchor because maybe they brought a situation or what have you as far as they can bring it. And they just need some additional support to help get it across the finish line. But then for others, we might need to be someplace in the middle. So it's the ability to be nimble and be responsive but be sensitive, but more importantly, be present. So how do we know that our initiative is working? How do we measure success? And does data, and you spoke a little bit about research, how do we know that this health equity initiative or engagement is working and, or if we need to recalibrate, how do you measure success? I think you measure success at various levels. I think you measure it at various levels and at various times. So for example, If you're working with a community and you want to begin to galvanize them around a particular issue, I'll use our work in Memphis around breast cancer. Breast cancer mortalities between African-American women and Black women were 50% and greater around in 2015-16 when we started working in Memphis. And so in that particular situation, it was more of a convening role. Us. And so it was really around asking ourselves, are we bringing the right people in the room? Once we began to do that and understand what were Black women saying in terms of their concerns around breast cancer? And then it is what were the community groups, the survivor organizations saying in terms of what they were saying? And then it was, 
can we begin to build, I'll use coalition for lack of a better term, can we really begin to build a coalition around a plan to address what we've heard? And so in that plan, though, you're identifying what are those process measures that you want to have in at different intervals. So if women are saying they don't have access to screening, don't know about screening, do you have a group that's handling education and awareness? Do you have you galvanized the health systems in a way now that you know exactly how many quote unquote free mammographies that you actually need to be providing to a community? All right. If we now also see that Yes, we can get women to screen, but now we have this gap between diagnostic. Have you brought that resource into the fold so that not only can you screen women, if something is identified, can you get them to a diagnostic on mammogram? Have you mitigated those barriers? So really begin to say, have you taken what you heard and actually built your coalition to be representative of those entities that actually can respond to what those needs are? Then once you've done that, establish what your baseline is. Perfect example, in Memphis, we realized that we needed each of the four health systems to donate 25 mammography screenings. All right, that's a very tangible number, right? Because not only was that a tangible number, that also said that in this process, there's room for everyone in the table. We know we need folks in education and awareness. We know we need partners who can handle the mammography screening part of it. We know we need navigators that can actually navigate women to screening if something's identified, to treatment, and through survivorship. All right. But we also know that there's these other costs of living, transportation, utility, housing. How we identify those resources as well. That's why I say you're having, you're measuring your progress at different times and at different things. So even making sure that we don't abort the importance of process measure and process evaluation so that it is not at the end when you're trying to measure impact that you realize that your process and your approach was all wrong. So you didn't get the impact because you didn't have these process measures and these intervals where you were actually evaluating your process before you got to the end to realize that you did not have the impact that you needed or that you desired. Does that answer your question? Certainly, yes. I know a lot of times we talk about data and those pieces and data data storytelling, but going back to what we talked about before about the patient voice isn't always included in those pieces. I think you answered it beautifully. And I, I can tell you're exceptionally passionate about the work that you do. And I would like to know what motivates you to do this work, because I think oftentimes change can be very slow. But what keeps you dedicated to this work that you're doing? Do you have a personal story or anything that you like to share that keeps you going? One thing that keeps me going in this work is a realization. Someone asked me before, how do I keep from becoming cynical? Because this can be very hard work. I said, this is H-A-R-D work but this is also H-E-A-R-T work as well. And so for me, it's the realization that there are people at the other end. There are people on the other side of what we're doing. And a community is comprised of people. I get my energy from people. That's my jam. That's why I was a mess in the pandemic because I couldn't be in communities. I was like, ah! So that's what motivates me. And so when you hear... When you see stories of a woman that is 60 years old 
and she just had her first mammogram. Unfortunately, you're always excited that it was negative. But then when you hear that story of that woman who's 60, she's had her first mammogram and it's at a stage three. And you're asking yourself, is there something that we, something more that could have been done? And so I'm always looking at how can we go upstream a little bit more so that we can start to mitigate some of the downstream impacts that we see. So everything that I see coming downstream, I'm always asking myself, what can we go upstream to improve so that this doesn't have to happen? One of my sheroes in this space is Dr. Kamara Jones. And she always talks about when we're addressing the social determinants of health or when we're talking about health equity. And she always talks about you really want to impact health equity, we really have to ask ourselves, what are those factors that are pushing people off the cliff? I don't know if you've ever seen her cliff analogy, but she is really saying we got to ask, what are those factors that are protecting one group from falling off the cliff, but also maybe pushing another group off the cliff? And so that really is about, let us go upstream a little bit more to really ask ourselves, what are those systems? What are those policies? that are really pushing people off the cliff. And so for me, that's my motivation, right? As long as premature mortalities are existing, as long as we're still seeing disparate outcomes for racial, ethnic, uh, limited resource, geographic disparate populations, as long as we're still seeing those things, I am going to still be in this work because I want to understand what's pushing people off the cliff. And more importantly, I want to be a part of the solution that prevents them from falling off those cliffs. That's what motivates me. As long as there are front porches, as long as there are steps, as long as there are communities, as long as there are laundromats or church pews or wherever, I'm going to have my behind on them because I want to hear what the community is saying. And more importantly, they are our greatest assets, our greatest, they're our greatest advocates in this space. And one of my colleagues always talks about 500 foot data. 500 foot data is qualitative data. It is so rich and we have forgotten in our quantitative lives and our quantitative processing mind, the value of qualitative data. Lived experience is just as rich as one plus one equals two. So the, when we create more space for the qualitative data, that is when we can really be able to galvanize communities around solutions. That's what keeps me excited about this. That is amazing. Thank you so much for your time today. If any of our listeners wanted to connect with you on social media, what's the best way for someone to do? I am Shanta Chambers and you can find me Shanta Chambers on LinkedIn. That's the only social media platform you find me. Um, You also can find Patient Advocate Foundation. And I encourage any of your listeners to reach out to us. As I mentioned, we are a national nonprofit, albeit headquartered in Hampton, Virginia. We support patients across all 50 states living with chronic and complex health conditions. They can find us also on the web at www.patientadvocate.org. And we are also one of a few nonprofits to offer copay assistance program that can be found at www.copay.org. And of course, you can always reach us. We're toll free at 1-800-532-5274. So 
that's us. Fantastic. If you enjoyed our conversation today, make sure to hit subscribe and follow us on social media. We want to keep you in the loop and make sure you never miss incredible guests and all the women and storytellers who are making moves that matter. Thank you for joining us today on the Hit Like a Girl podcast. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle Hit Like a Girl Pod. Thanks again. See you soon. Again, thank you so much for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. I am truly grateful for you, and I'm wondering if you could do me a quick favor. Would you be willing to follow or subscribe to this podcast, or maybe leave us a rating or review? Or if you're feeling extra generous, would you share this episode on your Instagram stories or with a friend? All those things help us podcasters out so much. I'm the show's host, Joy Rios, and I'll see you next time.